Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Dadhood Podcast. This is episode 12. And we are joined by Reese Byfield, who is also known as Muhammad Ibrahim Ashafi'i. He is a student at the Assalam Institute and has been for many, many years, uh, which is uh, an Alamir program. He's also a graduate from KCL King's College University, where he studied philosophy. And now he is going over to University of Cambridge to pursue a master's in the same subject. Uh, we he is a convert to Islam, so we mainly spoke about how his him as a new father he will be instilling a strong Muslim identity into his son, amongst many other things. This is definitely one to watch. And if you are new to this channel, please do make sure you subscribe and that you follow me on Instagram at Shoaib Muhammad for more dad-related content. So welcome to the podcast, uh, Reese. and we're going to start with our first question, which is, as always, how many children do you have and how old were you when you had your child? Or children? Kind of give it away salam. there. <laughs> <laughs> wa alaykum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakumullah khair for inviting me on the podcast. So I have one child, one young, one, one young lad back there, and um, I was 28. Still are um, twenty eight, mashallah. Good. And uh, what was the decision to have the child? Was it that um, it just came, Qadar Allah, or did you plan to have it at this stage? So he he was planned. However, um, he was uh, he 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 was it was kind of a um, a bit of a background story. Initially, I wanted to delay having children until I had a bit more stability. Until there was kind of uh, not necessarily so much to do with financial security, but because I have a very hectic lifestyle. And also as well, to be honest, I felt like I had a lot of growing up myself to do. Um, um, yeah, so that kind of, I kind of wanted to delay children. However, when uh, my grandfather passed away, it kind of brought that realisation that look, there's like a generation of people that are not going to see my child, that my child won't get to see. And that's like experiences that will will uh, be lost. So after about two months of after my grandfather passed away, I thought that it's um, that yeah I should kind of uh, go ahead and and start trying for a child. And alhamdulillah, he was uh, he, he was uh, clearly um, his soul was waiting eagerly to enter the earth. <laughs> <laughs> Alhamdulillah. What what did you what did you call him? His name is Isaac. Isaac or Ishaq? What would you prefer? So we actually refer to him as both. Officially, his name is okay. Isaac, right? But we've referred to him as both. And, um, and what, what was the decision behind it? So it, it was kind of like a, a hot topic for a lot of people. A lot of people were like, yeah, yeah, call him Isaac, but on the birth certificate, right, Ishaq. And like, there was a, why don't you just call him Ishaq instead? And there was kind of several motivating factors as to why I made the active decision to call him Isaac. But the kind of leading kind of decision was because when the prophets, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose prophets from amongst the people, you have kind of, Obviously, there's the debate of what is a Rasul and what is a Nabi. Leaving that aside, and we're just kind of keeping things generic. Um, a prophet or a messenger typically 
are from, or prophets at least, are typically from uh, the people whom they're conveying their message to. And with a few exceptions, like Lut salam, Ibrahim salam, who traveled to different peoples, but these are exceptions aside, the majority of the prophets and messengers were from the people whom they conveyed the message to. Which means they wore the same clothes, they had the same names, like they, they uh, barring a few people like Yahya السلام, who was given unique, a unique name, there's nothing special about the, the other prophets' names. Their names were common amongst the people. Mm. Um, even uh, Yusuf, السلام, whilst he had the name Yusuf, once he was put into slavery, he was actually known by an Egyptian name. And that was the name that he kind of carried on. Um, I've actually forgotten the name, but he had one. And that was the name that he was known by. Right. So um, when it came to kind of naming my son, I thought it would make sense that I give him a name that is within the domain of uh, a religious identity, but make it identifiable to the British people. And that was uh, the leading kind of uh, motivation. And a secondary motivation is that, look, um, I'm a convert to Islam. This guy is going to have a whole group of, um, obviously, one half Asian non-Muslims and the other half white non-Muslims. So right. if I give him this name, Isaac, this is a name that's easy for for him to be called um, Ironically as well um, My wife is from a Bengali background right And obviously okay. Bengalis uh, You know mashallah my, my fam- wife's family they, they pronounce his name correctly The Arabic version But uh, Bengalis They don't really pronounce uh, Arabic names properly either Like, <laughs> and, and I've seen, seen some people They, they say Ish, Ishak I'm like, but yeah. this is not his name anyway. <laughs> like, <laughs> Isaac would have like been so easier for you. <laughs> exactly. yeah, Isaac would have been easier for you anyway. But, um, yeah, so that was kind of like the motivations behind calling him Isaac. Right. That That's very interesting. And I can relate as well because uh, my wife's an English revert. And we had that discussion uh, more so for, for our second child, Sarah. So the older one is Isa. And uh, that was kind of like, I said to my wife, if we're having a son, I've already chosen Isa from ages ago, it's going to happen, okay? <laughs> uh, and it, it kind of works in terms of a conversation starter, in terms of that one with her side of the family, because it's, you know, obviously translated to Jesus and you have that whole conversation. So in a way it helps, but there, there wasn't like a motivation for it. It was just like, I, I wanted Isa for my son. But when it came to our daughter, Sarah, that was when we started having these type of discussions of what would be easier for people to pronounce uh what would make it more appropriate in terms of the culture what type of girls names would then be maybe seen ba- um not bad in this culture but due to the way that it's said for example fatima you find that a lot of people say fatima and then you get the connotations of that and fat and bullying and all that kind of stuff so we started thinking about all of these types of arguments and things like this and in that there was a lot of discussion and I'm sure you've had that you had that discussion as well of you know on one side are you pandering towards 
the the non-Muslims and the society uh, and uh, in, you're allowing them to maybe overpower you and make a decision that you're uncomfortable making because you want to make sure you're being pleasing to them and rather they should take the name and they should pronounce it properly. You should teach them to pronounce it properly and they should make effort to pronounce it properly. Right? So you have kind of these debates going on whereas others would say actually no it should be more sensitive towards the culture because essentially we should make it easy for people to understand and be invited to islam and make dawah easy etc and names are part of that like you said it's part of the culture and the whole reason why prophets were sent as part of their culture was to make the message more easier for the others to uh, the, the society to accept so we had a lot of these back and forth did you have these kind of uh, discussions as well with your with your wife and your family um I wouldn't say it was kind of like um, people questioned, but it's like I, I kind of before I even brought up the suggestion, I kind of thought out all of the re- kind of avenues in my head before even coming like verbalizing the idea. So when people kind of approached me with "Why not this?", I already had like a plethora of responses. <laughs> so so it was like just, they, just they like a, a pure to... academic. Like a pure <laughs> academic as you are And we'll come on to that later You already had everything ready They, they didn't have time to kind of uh, Have a comeback I think one of the One of the kind of what, A friend of mine But but did you he, internally have some of these discussions In your mind when So in, internally yes Internally I had these discussions Particularly kind of the Like to, to kind of summarise more Kind of crudely Bending over backwards right For, for yeah. the uh, For the The British lads Yeah yeah, um, yeah, and I kind of thought about it, and I kind of thought about as well the the identity issue, yeah, mm. of um, kind of maintaining a strong Muslim identity, which is obviously a struggle in the West. An I- interesting point: a a, a brother, uh, I don't know if you know brother Khidr. Yeah, I do. I had him on the podcast before. Oh uh, yeah, so Khidr Khidr mm. had a. Um, a Instagram post about um, that someone put up. It's not not from him, but someone put up a post about how um, moving to non-Muslim countries increases apostasy rates, and within a few generations, people kind of like you know left Islam, and then obviously we have our um, our Amir Boris Johnson. <laughs> yeah, who is the great grandson of a, of a Hafil, right? Yeah, and so there are these kind of instances, and these kind of things went through my head, but generally, and the way that I've kind of understood this, and this is obviously my opinion. Some people can feel very strongly about, uh, feel very much uh, in, in line with what was just said. I kind of disagree yeah. with um, that kind of sentiment because one, it's it's a bit of a fallacy because. Um, if apostasy was going to be caused by that, we, you know, we're in like uh, second gen, third gen Muslims now, and the community is only getting stronger in terms of their outreach programs, in terms of kind of establishing the communities. Look at like if you look at like the pictures of what East London Mosque used to look like, it was like a little, little tiny little hut, right? A little kind of mobile type building, and now it's like this huge masjid, right? And this, this isn't like uh, a one-off There's loads of masajid Throughout London and throughout the UK That kind of have these origin stories Where the communities have built them up yeah. um, 
people might kind of retort and say, okay, but what about kind of the identity crisis that um, that a lot of young Muslim teens are having now? Um, and I would argue that's less to do with kind of being in the West because we're having the same issues in Muslim countries and it's kind of a globalization problem anyway, that you're going to get this every, unless you go to like Mauritania or something and live in the desert. Global, the West is everywhere. The West is no longer the West. The West is global. Um, these things, I would say, are a realization that not so much a lack of identification with one's religion, but oh. feeling out of place because they haven't been given the religion to begin with. They've been given religion through a cultural lens and they've sure. been given uh, cultural practices that perhaps just look ridiculous now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in, just, su- in summary, uh, that, that, that might, that might, those cultural practices might work in that culture, but they're yeah. not working here for those children who have been born here and have been brought up here and they don't identify with their parents' culture anymore. C- certainly, certainly. That, that, yeah. It works in the country that it's from. And to be honest, yeah. even like to, to give an example, right, to give an example of this, um, we have a very famous movement in the UK and globally, to be honest, uh, for, that came from India, Tagbali uh, Jamaat, right? Yeah. And in India, this obviously uh, started, for, I'm sure you know, but for those that don't know, this movement started as a response to colonizers and kind of people that started apostatizing in India once the kind of British Raj was established. So they kind of established this thing where people would come, they would go to the masjid and like how it happens in the UK where they people come, they knock on your door, they take you to the masjid and then they kind of encourage you to then do the same thing and you you spend some time with scholars, etc, etc. Uh, do like an etikaf type thing, give some da'wah. That's kind of like what they did. And that worked really well in India. Now, even though I'm Muslim, if some guy came to my house and started knocking on my door saying, brother, come to the masjid for a talk, I would be like, no way, man. Just give me a leaflet. Send me a WhatsApp message or something. Like, it's completely out of send touch. Send me the live stream. <laughs> yeah, send me the live stream. It's completely out of touch with the modern context. Now, don't yeah. get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not being uh, for or against the movement. But now yeah. that I've mentioned a negative, I should mention some positives. There have been good success stories of British Muslims in this uh, movement where they've kind of gone through this process and turned their lives around. But I yeah. think the the movement as a whole or the approach, the methodology is what needs to be changed. The the yeah. manner in which they're going about their da'wah needs revamping, re, uh, revising to fit into the modern context. So, and that's obviously a religious movement. When we kind of put that into how people primarily learn their religion from their families and that's their religious practice so people that are kind of you know they they don't really know much about islam they don't really know much about why they believe in it they just know that they need to go pray juma they need to do eid and they need to fast during ramadan and that's pretty much yeah. the the average muslims practice right and then like you know they the, the times that they're in the mosque is uh juma and maybe an eid salah right yeah yeah. And that's kind of like the generic Muslim thing. So when you get like a, a brother or a sister like that, and you know you, they're folding the prayer mat, for example, so Shaitan doesn't pray on it, and then they kind of they go to school and then they you know they learn about some quantum physics and 
this and that and then you know it just they it just their beliefs just come across as ridiculous yeah. and quite rightly yeah. they are ridiculous but now they're exposed as ridiculous and now yeah. they have a problem mm. yeah yeah it's it's it's, it's missing the, the the essence and the foundation of islam and uh, uh and in and in in the face of what they're seeing in society what they're seeing in school what they're seeing from maybe uh people that they look up to as role models on youtube on tv etc what they're seeing there uh can definitely come across stronger than what they're seeing in their households so it can cause some of that so that that being said do you then have as a father a vision for isaac to uh, give da'wah or to um maybe be part of uh, changing the way that islam is spread to the indigenous people of the UK? So, I wouldn't say my focus for him is so much that, that I have in mind that I want him to be a Dai, right? As yeah. in, that's that's not like a... Like a I, I don't think... It didn't, don't wake up and think, okay, I, I need you to be the next Muhammad Hijab or the next, like... Like, <laughs> as in... I mean, if that's what he wants, that's what he wants. But my kind because of because it seems focus... like it seems like what it looks like right now, from what you've explained, is that there there is a path being carved out for him. Him being called Isaac, the reason why he was called Isaac. What you've explained about how uh, culture and Islam fits within Britain, it seems like he would be the perfect or ideal candidate to drive Islam for future generations and be so... at maybe. The, the the front of that or the head of that is that so, as, as a father have you done that for a particular reason so kind of like if we look at kind of my vision of da'wah right and then obviously you have kind of like two types of da'wah we can if we kind of quickly summarize something right yeah and and this is obviously being super generic and not being the whole truth but you have two types you have the kind of predominant da'wah of the masses which people kind of enjoy and watch on YouTube, which is kind of like the debates, the speaker corner stuff, the the kind of handing out leaflets, the street level da'wah, which yeah. serves a purpose and works well. But then you have kind of the 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 root of da'wah or the essence of da'wah, which is being part of a community and serving the community in such a way that people want what you have. Yeah. Right? So you want in essence the da'wah is the softening of hearts, right? Yeah. And when you kind of mix with the people and you fit in with those people, but you maintain your integrity, you maintain your principles and you're good to those people, those people will come to Islam. Those people will their hearts will soften. Um I, once I gave a talk um, for, you know, like uh, the Discover Islam Week kind of thing, right? Yeah. And we're in the thing, and coincidentally, it was um, like uh, I gave a, a talk at a, a, uh, ISOC, and uh, Hamza Zulsis was the other speaker. Okay. Right? So, and he kind of, his talk was about, like, you know, the evidences of Islam, why you should be Muslim. Okay. And there, there was so he spoke first, and I spoke, and 
Um, I think as well that Hamza's with what I'm about to say, Hamza Zulsis would totally agree with me. Not that I speak with him. I, I don't think I. Besides that day that I met him and had a very short conversation with him, I've never spoken to him before that or after that. But based okay. upon things that he said, I think he'll agree with what I say next. That mm-hmm. he kind of, you know, presented a series of arguments, gave some hadith, spoke about, you know, like the Arabs building towers, etc., etc., prophecies, proof of God arguments, etc., etc. And then when when I get my talk wasn't so much about why you should be Muslim; it was my con, uh, conversion story. But I use that as a as a kind of uh, as a means to kind of tell people why they should be Muslim, right? So, yeah, yeah. so, so in that, my, I kind of thought, okay, well, Hamza Zulzis has kind of given these kind of proof of God arguments. I'm going to come from a completely different angle, and I'm going to talk about how it feels to be Muslim, the mm-hmm. the connection with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, having knowing that you can do tawbah, knowing that you can your 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 sins are wiped clean upon uh, accepting Islam, knowing. That you can genuinely connect with your Lord, the one who made you, the one who's in charge of everything. Anyway, after that, there was this young Catholic lad. He came up to me, and he was like, "I want to become Muslim." Uh, and wow. you know, we were like, "Quick, let's let's do this right now before he changes his mind." <laughs> yeah. So, so he took his shahada. Yeah, he he took his shahada. We we went to like some restaurant. He took his shahada. We done the hugs and and all of that. And then I was just genuinely curious and. I was like, so what? What made you become Muslim? What was the thing that convinced you? Um, and he basically said, when I heard you speaking about God's mercy and having a connection to God and having your sins wiped clean, that's what I wanted. Wow. So it wasn't the the intellectual side. It wasn't the arguments. It wasn't the evidences. It was connecting on emotion and an emotional level. So the da'wah plan that I have for Isaac in terms of, and by da'wah I mean specifically calling people to Islam as in non-Muslims to Islam. Obviously there's, the word, the, the word has more meaning than that. And sure. every, every kind of uh, public kind of uh, Islamic activity, even if it's serving Muslims, is still da'wah. But I'm, I'm kind of distinguishing that yeah. and saying... Uh, the missionary side of da'wah, right? Mm. Um, that's how I plan to kind of fit him into that, where he's capable to, capable of being positioned into society in such a way that if he is a a good Muslim, a Muslim who embodies the religion, that will be his primary means of calling people to Islam. And he mm. doesn't have social barriers. I think the, the kind of like, the ideal person who I see in kind of like this is, you know, you know Jonathan Brown, uh, Professor yep. Jonathan Brown. Yeah. When, when I see him, I'm like, this guy is like, you know, he, he's a real like, you know, he's shaker of minds and things like that. <laughs> like, like, like he's, he's like a white guy. Yeah. yeah. Jonathan Brown, you'd never know. Yeah. Tweet if you saw suit. him, you never know. <laughs> yeah. But then in terms of like Islamic studies, particularly the field of hadith, all of the shubu hats, mm. he just destroyed them to the extent yeah. that because before him, whilst there were people doing a lot of effort in the area, uh, and he wasn't alone in the effort, but um, we had major attacks on kind of like the hadith to the extent where academics were like it's just a bunch of rubbish. 
Like it's yeah. it's something that can just be dismissed, and Muslims shouldn't take it seriously. And it's like they treat hadith as just complete fiction. Yeah. Right. That's that's how the academics took it. Jonathan Brown comes along, and just smashes that idea to pieces. Right. And then on top of that. He's a white guy called Jonathan Brown, who's a Muslim. He's an academic. He's an intellectual. You yeah. know, he he's gonna be um, raising some raising some eyebrows, turning some heads, right? And yeah. it's gonna be um, strong data. So, so that's kind of like what I want from him in terms of that aspect. Okay, Subhanallah. So, um, you you did mention that a number of times that you're a reaver, and I I'm interested. I think you're you're the only reaver that I've had on this podcast so far. And I'm interested to see from from your perspective, um, what fatherhood is to you, because um, we know that uh, the way that parents parent, uh, some of that, maybe even a significant portion, um, is connected to how they saw the, their experiences of growing up with their parents, how they saw their parents parent them, how they were in their relationship as a child and a mother and a father and what that was like for them and the experiences that they took from their parents for however many years that they were not kind of in typical fashion 18 years uh, and they take those experiences and maybe they learn some additional things in the next sort of five six seven years of their life but their life has generally been molded uh, by what their parents have done for them and how they raised them and so when they have their, their child there's a lot of subconscious memories that are unlocked experiences that are unlocked that you then naturally fall into some of those routines that your parents and the methods that your parents gave towards you uh, when you when you were growing up underneath them you transfer that over to how you parent your child so I don't, i'm not sure if you've had uh, a chance to think about this yet given that it's only been four months um so maybe this would be a session for you to reflect on it uh, but how do you think you being brought up in a non-Muslim household with non-Muslim parents now becoming Muslim, what would your approach to fatherhood be? I think the simple answer is probably would be, well, I'm Muslim now, I'm going to do it as a Muslim would. But I think that's too simple because there's a lot of psychology that goes on in terms of how you would address being a father having grown up uh, uh, under non-Muslim parents. So... Sorry, if you hear some background noise, that's that's uh, the milk Sorry. coming, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, you might hear screams in 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 my house or my daughter running around, so it's all good. Um, so to be honest, you have me on the back foot with this question. I haven't really kind of thought about it in that way or kind of approached um, my kind of journey as a father in that way. Um, yeah. I suppose what kind of the kind of core thing or the thing that kind of strikes me most as being kind of uh, the consequence of that is that having a strong desire of nurturing an Islamic identity but in a specific way because obviously we speak about Islamic identity a lot people think of it either the kind of really really shallow understanding of um uh, you know, having having a beard, dressing a certain way, which is like the most shallow possible way that we can discuss identity. <laughs> Other people think of it as kind of being involved in the community or having a certain name or certain certain things. 
But the kind of approach that I have is understanding that being, and obviously this is something that's unique, that it's, it's not unique to be to a convert, but it's something that a convert will appreciate more, perhaps, is that being Muslim and having a Islamic heritage, right? Because some people might think, or some people might question, how do I have an Islamic heritage, right? right. Because I became Muslim. Do I do I have a legitimate claim to an Islamic heritage? And the Islam Islam itself <clears throat> is something obviously both spiritual and intellectual. And there is no race or culture that has a monopoly on that religion. So you can't inherit from your blood um, being uh, that 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 uh, tradition, that heritage. Rather, what you inherit is knowledge and spirituality, as in the hadith where the Prophet Muhammad says that prophets don't leave anything behind other than knowledge. Right, as in that is the inheritance of the prophets, knowledge. So, inheriting the tradition and becoming and developing a Muslim identity is inherently linked to learning the religion. That developing an identity is knowing about Islam. And your ancestors in faith are those that traversed the spiritual path of the, of the religion and those that worked on the religion. So anyone who kind of, kind of uh, begins the path of seeking knowledge or starts to kind of take seriously the religion they have ancestors who have done the same right and their fathers and great grandfathers now alongside their blood lineage are these spiritual and intellectual giants so if we take the least controversial figure who kind of combines the the spiritual and the intellectual <clears throat> is abdul qadir al-jilani right who's kind yeah. of like Everyone wants to lay claim, right? You have like the Sufis yeah. wanting to lay claim, the Salafis mm-hmm. want to lay claim. Everyone wants to lay claim to him. But it's undoubtedly the case that he was a person who preached, uh, who was a master of all of the Islamic sciences, who wrote books on spirituality, who wrote books on theology. And people like that, right? People that are accepted individuals, people that are well-rounded in all the fields, these are our ancestors. These are these. This is our heritage. And if a person is cut off from their heritage, how can they ever have identity? Because knowing your your uh, if if by that logic or by the logic of people that think that ident your identity is linked to your culture or identity is linked to your clothes, right? By that logic, look, I'm wearing a thobe right now. Am I Arab? No. So it's not my clothes. I I, I have a English mother and an Indian father. Uh, is this my heritage in th- in that sense? Am I, uh, as in this would legitimize the claim that, okay, if you get a Sikh person and a Christian yeah. person and they have a baby, it's a Muslim, right? As in, as in, as in obviously in my case that happened, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, um, uh, 
obviously that's just not true, right? As in that's not what that's not the um, of course the mathematical that's not one plus one. genetics yeah. uh, situation here. <laughs> so rather, heritage is an intellectual and spiritual thing. Interesting. So, uh, I, I guess what I gain from that is, um, if if a child is born to 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 Muslim parents, and let's say those Muslim parents have uh, a whole kind of lineage of Muslims going back and back and back, they were born into a Muslim family, their family is born to a Muslim family, for example. Um, it's not by the virtue of them being born into a Muslim family that that child will now grow up with. Muslim values and become a strong Muslim and identify as a Muslim and the parents would will uh, uh, raise them up in the best most Islamic way uh, uh, just by the virtue of that child being born into that family in fact it is uh, from the parents effort of them learning about their faith and passing that 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 on to their child and making effort to raise that child according to that knowledge that they learn is what is how that child would be raised uh, uh, as a Muslim and will gain a, a, a Muslim or Islamic identity. So yeah, yeah, but also kind of more so the I would say that the job of the parent isn't just to kind of transmit their own knowledge, right? Because yeah. if we kind of put things most frankly and uh, more, more frankly, not many parents are qualified to transmit knowledge. Right, as in, as in explicitly, like, you know, you can, no, you say, like, like the average uh, mother or father can teach their child how to pray. Yeah. But it, even in this point, bro, like, there's people who, for instance, like, um, I'm, I'm kind of schooled in Hanafi fiqh, so there's people that have been Hanafi their whole lives, and I've seen them pray. And they're praying wrong. Yeah. As, as in, like, I know, I know, like, in the university world, like, back in the day, that was a thing. Like, bro, you're praying wrong. You need to, you know, follow the Salaf as Like, I'm not talking about this. I mean, literally. <laughs> Ankos to Ankos the, brothers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about, like, I understand. they say yeah. they follow the madhab, but they're not yeah. following the madhab. They're doing something completely way off, right? Yeah. And they've been through a madrasa system. They've done this. They've done that. Yeah. It's not sufficient. Rather, the job of the parent is if the parent is not capable of giving the intellectual and spiritual tradition, then they need to find someone who is, as in getting them in touch with scholars and things like that. But but not just this aspect. What I'm really talking about is understanding both kind of nurturing the the spiritual spirituality and having a connection with Allah. And, and that this is this is um, obviously the essence, and then also kind of knowing how to pray, but yeah. I mean kind of knowing the trajectory of where we came from intellectually, knowing our history, mm. to kind of, like more bluntly knowing our history, but not in the sense of kind of like you need to know all the details. I mean know the personalities, know our heroes, know and know what they were about, and know what their struggles are uh, were, and know. The type of people they were in terms of the way in which they sought to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And yeah. kind of an amalgamation of those things. And sadly, as parents, we can't transmit all of that. But that's why we yeah. have the phrase like, you know, it, it, it takes a community to raise a baby. Yeah, it, it, it's, um, 
it is, it's a community effort. There'll be things yeah. that we as parents can't do, right? There, there are, we ourselves might have character faults or might have deficiencies that we need to work on. So we need to look to people that are better than us to both help ourselves, but also help our children. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that's kind of like where I'm coming from and kind of taking the, taking the kind of literal meaning of the word tarbiyah, which is kind yeah. of like the, in, in like the books of dictionaries, ter, the example of tarbiyah is literally a plant that you kind of, yeah. you give the plant what it needs. Cause maybe yeah. like the, the soil that the plant, the seed is in is not sufficient for its growth. So you might need to supplement that. And if you kind yeah. of look at ourselves as being kind of like the bare minimum nutrition for a child, but the, yeah. there needs to be more. Uh, I had another question about about you being a convert and your experiences and related to fatherhood. Uh, just like myself, uh, my children are going to be growing up with half of their family being non-Muslim. And uh, they are going to have to, as they grow up, come to terms and identify with the fact that they have that part of the family, that they... Uh, that that they are half Pakistani, that they are half English, and they have to come to terms with uh, maybe whatever clashes come from those type of identities, uh, whether that is a perceived clash, whether that is a real clash, um, whatever happens in the next few years. Uh, and I'm thinking about how, as a father, I will prepare them for this and how I will uh, nurture them through this as well to make to make sure that they are able to get through that whilst not shunning them away from the fact that they are going to maybe experience negativity, experience racism, experience discrimination um, uh, and, and, and all the different isms that come along with this kind of mix of cultures and mix of religions, uh, not to shun them away from that. In fact, I want them to know that that's a reality and maybe allow them to experience it but you never want your child to experience it to such an ex extent that it starts to damage them mentally it starts to it starts to really take a, a hold of them and a grip of them and they they become confused on how to navigate things so in that i'm always thinking about what am i going to do i'm sure you've probably had those thoughts even before you had a child you'd be thinking when i have a child i'm sure this is probably going to be the case i'm sure once you were taking the decision to uh, come to Islam, some of these things were popping popping into your mind in terms of yourself, how you're going to navigate in all of this as well. So um, what are your views on this when it comes to, to Isaac? So I think that um, obviously you can't control the actions of others and you can't um, create uh, the ideal situation all the time. Eventually kind of the uh, the bubble must burst and the boy must be free, yeah? <laughs> So, um, yeah. I think the best thing we can do, or at least in my view, is literally give that strong sense of identity. Um, and, and the kind of thing that you want is confidence in what we have. The example I give to people of kind of like uh, confidence is... Um, when I came, when I went to Saudi Arabia, my a few years ago, um, unfortunately, obviously, I haven't been now. Loads of COVID and all of those things, but it's it's back open now, inshallah. So perhaps Allah will invite Shalla. me. But anyway, uh, when I was last there, 
I was in a in a in a uh, taxi with, you know, the uh, a taxi driver in Saudi, and um, in a taxi the taxi driver, amazing. Yeah, in a, in a, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, so, so he was he was um, driving me to my location. We're having a conversation. Then he's like, "Oh, you're a convert, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So he's like, right. "When did did you become Muslim first, or your family, right? Not right. even considering the fact that they could not be." So I said right. to him that oh, they're not Muslim, and he looked at me like, "What's wrong with them? Like why?" <laughs> yeah, and he was honestly shocked that a person could come to know about Islam in any way, shape, or form, and not accept it. Obviously, we're talking mm-hmm. about a guy who's kind of like from a village, yeah. But like, yeah. like, uh, but the sheer confidence of like all I have to say is Islam, and people will just submit and like that. Yeah. That confidence, obviously, whilst that confidence in this context is foolish, right? Properly uh, made appropriate and kind of given a bit of uh, sense to it is what we want people to have. And I think that people knowing kind of like the background stories and and the heritage and also kind of removing kind of the ridiculous bits yeah and by ridiculous mm. bits i mean the bits that are not part of the religion and even the bits yeah. that have become religiousized right mm. all of these kind of additional um kind of uh, as we can say the, yeah. the masala yeah the masala added to the story we don't need that why don't we enjoy the steak for its natural taste and at best we just add a tiny bit of salt and pepper yeah and just to bring out the natural flavors not to add flavor that's not natural to it, and as long as we we remove the masala, we give them. The I don't steak. think the Asians can have a steak uh, with just salt and pepper, bro. That's why bro, they have to add the bro, masala. Listen, then they've not had a real steak cooked properly. <laughs> a a steak cooked properly d- does not need seasoning. Maybe maximum garlic powder. That's it. Maximum. Maximum. I agree with you, bro. I think you need to uh, maybe once you're done with Cambridge, start a a chef school for 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 us uh, Asian Muslims and teach us <laughs> real English cuisine, bro. Yeah, as it. Yep, yeah, yeah, bro. Look, my boy Salt Bay, he landed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, by by the way, you go there. Yeah, Reese ten. Uh, 50% I'm joking There's no <laughs> <laughs> Was it Reese 10 But you get 50% <laughs> Yeah I, I, I don't know bro I, I didn't think about it Before I said it I was going to say 10% off But it sounds a bit Too realistic So <laughs> You know what it is All of these YouTubers It's like uh, I, I watch this YouTuber Who's into like fitness His name's Will Tennyson And he always says yeah. like 10 10 for discounts Then uh, That's why I said 10 <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I, I don't know Salt Bay, and, and you won't get a discount. <laughs> but a, a, a good not steak sponsored. doesn't need to, yeah, yeah. The, the, Dong Dongo was better places. <laughs> um, yeah, the yeah, po- so the point is is true. Yeah, giving the real the real deal the 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 raw the raw meat or the raw religion, and inspiring confidence by showing them their heritage and where they've come from is enough to give that kind of what you want is yaqeen what you want is uh, confidence and the ability to be proud about where, where you've come from and when a person doesn't know where they've come from when they don't know what they have to offer and they don't know 
uh, their religion without nonsensical parts, um, they uh, they they're not going to be confident about it. Um, so yeah, kind of inspiring these things, inspiring those points, um, having kind of the foundations and understanding of things mm. is where I would go with kind of having children. Obviously, when they're like five, it doesn't really matter too much, right? But <laughs> when they're a bit older and they can kind of understand things a bit more, having that strong foundation. I can imagine things, you're taking Isaac to the park and he's on the swings and you're trying to explain to him the uh, <laughs> the, the, the arguments against atheism and uh, going into the differences of aqidah and all of this kind of uh, stuff, uh, mashallah. Yeah, yeah, like, let's push him on the swing. You see that guy? He's a deviant. okay we're back uh after we had some technical changes you can see (laughs) reese has got his headphones on now uh mashallah so uh we were about to jump into a different discussion anyway which is going into uh your um story i guess i mean the story is just starting uh (laughs) on being accepted to university of cambridge understand that you've now enrolled and, and and visited uh, but uh, so everything is just going to start now. So, what were some of the motivations behind uh, going to study uh, at Cambridge? What are you studying as well? Um, and uh, we'll try to relate this back to fatherhood afterwards. So, when I was in my second or third year of Alimia, um, I kind of, I was kind of really inspired by uh, a lot of my teachers there who. Are like academics and you know they've got degrees but they're also traditionally trained at first I kind of decided okay what would I do so I I enrolled into a university known as Burbeck College in London it's between SOAS and UCL and I enrolled to their philosophy degree and okay. I'm going to super summarize this story because this story can be quite long but I'm going to summarize it whilst I was so there, just to clarify uh, you going to Burbeck is You've you've started studying your alimia. You haven't yeah. yet got a traditional university degree, and now no. through through some of these inspirations that you're seeing and these arguments that you're seeing, you're becoming motivated to go and get this degree. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So so I started at Burbeck, and whilst I was at Burbeck, I was working literally across the road from Kings, and right. I was um, listening to a podcast by this uh, philosopher known as Peter Adamson. And he does like, a, his podcast is called History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. He's a very cool guy. I'd recommend people, if they want to learn about philosophy in kind of like a, a friendly and bite-sized way, his podcast is really good, to the extent that his podcast has now become books. Um, but yeah, so I was listening to his podcast, and his podcast at the beginning of it is, you know, sponsored by the King's College Philosophy Department, etc., etc. So I was kind of getting in my head that, yeah, you know, and this kind of inspired the idea of, okay, well, what about if I take this desire of kind of, you know, getting educated in a particular field and take it a bit further and say that, look, okay, we have this intention of da'wah, right? And the height of doing this da'wah or this kind of efforts is going into academia, becoming a professor, getting into, you know, Getting, being at the top of the ch- of the food chain, yeah, and that's where we're going to achieve the most. And what this also does is this then now aligns my Islamic efforts, my personal interests, 
and a career. So I kind of put all all of them into one and streamlined them. Um, and I thought to myself, okay, well, if I want um, to succeed in this and actually have, uh, as it essentially, if I'm going to be do well in my dawah efforts, my voice has to have some credibility, isn't it? I need to be yeah. someone that people are going to listen to. So, yeah, being credible, being taken seriously by the academic community, so the whole effort, the whole dawah effort can be taken, I need to go to a Russell Group University. So, whilst kind of staring down at King's and from my workplace window and listening to the podcast, I was like, why don't I apply to King's? And you have to contextualize this, that this is kind of a bit of a dream at the moment. Yeah. yeah. As in, we went from not having a degree to kind of getting a degree at like a nighttime university whilst working and being married, working full time and doing Islamic studies, right? To now going to kind of uh, King's, which is it like, you know, in the, I think it's like one of the top 10 unis in, in the UK. And I think yeah. it's, it's like in the top 30 in the world. So we're kind of like, you know, uh, being a bit ambitious <laughs> at this stage. So I, I made an application and they made me an offer. And uh, bro, when I tell you the offer, the offer was a joke. Yeah. <laughs> like as in, like, you know, you know, like, you know, if you really don't like someone. Yeah. But you can't say no. Yeah. So you want to give them something. You want to make it impossible for them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They said to me, in your first year, when you finish Burbeck, in your first year, you need to get 70% overall and you have to get 70% in each module. Wow. Like, who does that? Who achieves that in the first year? <laughs> like, it's a joke. That is mad. So, honestly, so obviously, I got into kinks, right? And the, the, this is why, and this is the kind of mantra at this point is that, look, The whole time, wallahi, I had the intention of this dawah effort. And the only reason I got into kings is because it was purely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And obviously it's hard to maintain, a dis- to, to maintain intentions, right? And it's hard to, and when you have like, Intentions for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Allah, uh, Shaitan will come at you and attack you But it's important obviously Regardless of uh, being attacked Wavering from the path That you have to come back And you may remain firm on your intention And get back to where you were And because of dua And um, that intention Being for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala I was successful in that And obviously one of the greatest blessings of the academic calendar in our current uh, time period is that Ramadan falls during exam season. <laughs> yeah. So literally, bro, every night in Taraweeh, I was making dua to the extent where that like, like it was it was a very beautiful experience just making dua regularly. And then, you know, and, and you know, like people make dua, right? We make du'a, I make du'a, and sometimes it's, it's kind of like, it's, it, sometimes it feels a bit trivial. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, just ma- you're just making a routine du'a for stuff. But you know when you genuinely want something, 
and you genuinely have in your heart that Allah is the one who can give it to you. And more yeah. so, when you want that thing for Allah. Yeah. You're doing it for Allah. Like, for instance, say you you really want to do Hajj, right? You really want to go to Hajj. And the, re- the reason why you want to do it is not for anything else other than to fulfill the obligation. And you want that, you want to fulfill that obligation to be closer to Allah. Yeah. You make dua for, guarantee anyone in this scenario, I guarantee you, if you do that with these intentions, you will be going to Hajj. If, if, if you do it now, before the Hajj season comes, you'll be going Hajj this year. I guarantee it is the case. And that's the case in this scenario. And that's how I got to Kings. And to summarize, uh, the same thing again. And now we're in Cambridge. <laughs> and, and, and I want, for those that listen to this, it is very important to understand that if we go back to the beginning of the story, the guy with no degree... The guy who didn't really like, bro. When I, when I was before I was Muslim, yeah, people said to me in school, like teachers and stuff, "You're smart, but you need to do more effort." Yeah, you need to mm. try, bro. I was the guy that done no effort. Yeah, like, like, like uh, I, I, bro. Academia I went, was basically like all the way over there. It was not even in the vision, bro. Imagine this here for my GCSEs. You know, like the GCSE exams were like two, some of them were like two hours, right? Yeah. Bro, I bunked the first hour of one of my GCSE exams. <laughs> yeah. I Who was like, that? I can't boys. Hours too long. Bro, check this. In my English GCSE, I took a nap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bro, I was like the worst student. Yeah. Are you so sure I, you want this to come out? Yeah, because uh, Cambridge might see this. <laughs> it's too late now. Like we're, we're in the fees. Inshallah, have have been paid. <laughs> they can't. <laughs> I, I mean, maybe delay releasing this until nine months, right? When the degree's finished. <laughs> but I would say that it was once, as in yeah. The point is, look at who this person was, and then kind of finding something, finding a vision, developing the vision. And then doing it, f- and and your vision being for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa taala. Not only did Allah facilitate it, but Allah facilitated the change in me to become a student, to become a good mm. student, right? Where I'm like staying on the top of deadlines. I'm smashing them out. I'm doing them here. I'm doing them there. And then, yeah. kind of like the next kind of miraculous thing is obviously. I'm working in um, my second, uh, first and second year, and then in my third year, obviously, uh, I'm, uh, you know, young Isaac is on the way, yeah. Uh, I'm something flopped with my work where instead of working part time, I had to work full time for the whole of the first semester. Wow. Yeah. And obviously, you know. Um, uh, you know, my wife has my wife had severe morning sickness. So like, and because of like the whole COVID situation, everything, like she didn't even get medicine. The you know the anti sickness tablets, yeah. she didn't even get that for a couple months. Like there was like, and she didn't even. I think I don't even remember the exact date, but we were like, we didn't even like you know like you have the time for time scale for yeah. the scans. 
we were like seriously late where I think by the second scan they told us the gender. That's how late. Oh. Wow. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. Like the the NHS kind of well, not the NHS but the, the hospital kind of messed up in the process and there was a lot of things happening, right? But because of the sincerity and the dua in the intention being for the sake of Allah, Allah facilitated it um taking place but also made the changes in me to mm. be the type of person to achieve it. Yeah. Despite despite all of those factors that could have thrown you off, you were you were still able to Allah facilitated for you to mm. to take those on and, and 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 still to face them with the sincerity and keep going through uh, forth with them, and that that to, actually yeah. leads me go on actually go on. Uh, so to to the extent that one of my friends, I, I think I told you this before, but one one of my friends basically said that I'm like the Elon Musk of productivity. <laughs> yeah, where where basically, I was, I had a full time job, my wife was pregnant, and then obviously whilst I was doing my dissertation, he was born. Yeah. I, and, um, I was doing my Islamic studies, I was teaching classes as well, so I was wow. teaching a theology class, a aqidah class, which I teach for free, um, and, um. I can't even remember everything that I was doing, but a bunch of other stuff, right? And kind of like the process of uh, thing. Obviously, imagine like, imagine you have to take a break in writing your dissertation because your wife's in labor. <laughs> your wife's in labor. You're, yeah, they're in, it's in COVID, right? So your your women are only allowed one birthing partner and that's yeah. me. So I'm yeah. there. We don't have any help for that time period until we get home. Yeah. And uh, and obviously, and then when he was and you're born, there with your laptop next to her while she's giving birth. Bro, bro, yeah, no, 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 there, there was no, there was no laptop for that time period. <laughs> I had like a, I had two weeks where I didn't get any work done, basically. Wow, so hard on But yeah, so so that was only possible by um, obviously Allah's tawfiq and obviously Allah inspiring into me. And, and changing me to be a person who's capable of uh, dealing with that, basically, and yeah. and and this is obviously for Cambridge. I'm a good student now. <laughs> don't, don't kick me out. <laughs> don't listen to Shaib. <laughs> Subhanallah. That's um. Is it? I mean, whilst listening to, I'm just reflecting upon uh, my when when. When my wife got pregnant, I was doing a master's at the time and she was still finishing off her degree. And um, we, 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 we were really struggling to keep up with, uh, with our studies. And to be honest, we took the decision to, to take a pause from, from university whilst, whilst that was happening because I was working full time, doing my master's part time. Uh, and then my wife falling pregnant, we had to find our own place to move into. Uh, and I was on a really low salary as well at that point. Um, and so we had to move out of London, away from family. So all of those things combined, um, I just felt like I couldn't carry on my studies. So you saying that reminds me of that that stage. And, uh, and it's, it's amazing and inspiring to see that you were able to go through it and still uh, kind of manage to get through it, basically, and, and, and end up um, 
now alhamdulillah going for 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 your masters at, at cambridge university but that being said you now doing a uh, starting a, a a path in cambridge university is going to pose its own challenges because you have the baby now as well right <laughs> uh, of course having your wife being pregnant is one thing whilst doing your dissertation and in your final year of your your undergraduate studies but this is also another challenge having a newborn baby whilst doing your postgraduate studies so how do you imagine that this is going to go and you being abu productive or the elon musk of productivity uh, how do you think that you're going to manage all of that as being a dad starting a, a masters n- not in any institute cambridge um you were saying how you might need to move towards cambridge as well yeah. uh, so all of these things combined i can imagine it can uh, be quite difficult but you've faced difficulty already and got through it so uh, you seem confident so, but i want to know how you're going to do it so ha- have you heard of pomodoros yes so yeah so for those that don't know 25 pomodoros minutes are, yeah. yeah yeah 25 yeah. minutes 5 minute break and then carry on yeah so yeah. Th- so that's what i do i tell my son you get 25 minutes of my time no, so <laughs> <laughs> but, but, i really <laughs> thought you were going to say yeah i'm going to study for 25 minutes <laughs> That's no, a true no. that's a true productive master mashallah even no. your baby has to follow your productivity <laughs> rules <laughs> no, no that definitely would not work <laughs> um no so, so with that kind of like the whole productivity thing like I, i am certainly not the Elon Musk of productivity i i view myself as like the least productive guy i know yeah right. so just to clarify that 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 was just kind of a a, a uh hyperbole hyperbolic statement of how it was a difficult time not that i'm super productive it's it, i just i think i'm a person that just works well under pressure okay but h- how do I, how am i going to manage this i would say the first two months particularly the first month of fatherhood is probably and you know each hurdle was different but that was probably the most difficult time right because uh, in in comparison to all these things that you just just explained yeah as in, as in as in that was crunch time for university that was like oh know, right okay all of this okay stuff. okay yeah but more specifically with him as 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 you know having a son being a father that was the most yeah. difficult time because um one for like the first two weeks my wife was like like out out of it, out of it right so i was like mum and dad for the first two weeks then yeah. um and then obviously now, now after that i tagged her back in and said please now i need a time out yes so so, <laughs> so so like uh we um obviously that was kind of like the difficult part going from that going from like sleeping whenever you want to sleep to sleeping no sleep <laughs> Yeah basically you do pomodoros with your sleep now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um basically just operating on no sleep, not being able to focus, uh yeah. that kind of stuff. Where now alhamdulillah like there's a level of routine. Yeah, it's not that you know you have all this free time you can do what you want. It's yeah. like maybe you get like an hour in the night where you can do what you want, but yeah. Um the rest of the day is kind of like you know spending time with him here and there you know uh you know mum takes a turn i take a turn mum takes a turn i take a turn 
things like that. But um, generally for me, um, I can function if I get sleep. If I don't get sleep, I can't function. I can, my, my uh, ability to do things is very dependent upon my sleep. So now where, he, where he's kind of starting to develop a routine and he'll sleep a bit, like he, he'll, he'll get a good night's sleep as opposed to yeah. waking up every two hours. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. for those of you that don't have children, people people think oh they're like oh babies are meant to be sleeping like twenty hours a day. This and it feels like they sleep one hour, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or like or or they like they'll sleep for you'll feed them. They'll they'll it takes another half an hour, so it takes like half an hour to feed them, half an hour to put them back to sleep. You need to do and in that half an hour you got to do a nappy change. You got to do this. Yeah. You got to do that. And then, then it's uh, then it's the half an hour to put them to sleep, and then, obviously, it's been like an hour and a half. So now you got they get half an hour nap, and then they wake up again. So it, when when I say they literally wake up every two hours, it's literally every two hours, right? <laughs> that's how that's how like the first month is, yeah, and yeah. Um, that's really difficult. But now, kind of moving forward, it's like okay, well, he's got a bit of a pattern. I I need to understand. When I need to start doing my work, when I, um, when is my time to work, and when is my time not to work, and uh, just just having just kind of finding out where he where where like where where I can fit university with him, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I I I'm hopeful that inshallah it will be easier because. Um, based upon how Cambridge is, it's like I have my big dissertation, right? And then I have two other modules. So it's like the workload is a lot less. Okay. And I have one module per, per semester and then obviously the dissertation throughout the year. Uh, sorry, three modules. Um, one in the first semester, two in the second semester. And, you know, that's that's a lot easier than focusing on three or four modules per term. Yeah. So... Yeah. Uh, inshallah, given that he has a better sleeping pattern, he is uh, a little bit more independent in the sense of he can kind yeah. of play with himself a bit. Um, inshallah, it will be it will be. I'm scared to say easier, not easier, <laughs> but more feasible. <laughs> inshallah, inshallah, may Allah make it easy. So, Amen. bro, just to wrap up and and end off here. Uh, I'm interested to know in these four months, what is uh, maybe the biggest thing that you've learned from from being a father so far? There's obviously going to be so much more to come, and you can't, you know, four months is 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 a short amount of time in comparison to how many years you would potentially be a father. But mm. this this is a fresh new experience, so there must have been some reflections that you've had in these past couple of months, uh, and at least one of them I'd like you to share. It's difficult to choose one, but I suppose I should choose the one that uh, is the most important for the most number of people. Mm-hmm. And that is, until you have children, you don't appreciate your parents. You don't value them in the same way. Um, may I add a second reflection, which is equally good. Yeah. I'll make it quick, I promise. But to yeah. finish this one up, that the... The kind of the effort that parents have to go through and continue to go through 
It's only then you appreciate what your parents did for you and how you know they managed it and then the extent to which we sh- regardless of whether or not we agree or disagree with the decisions they they made or uh the decisions they continue to make or how the thing the things that they want for you we still need to be grateful to them and even if our parents did make mistakes one thing that is clear is that a bro like it, there isn't like you know like the a kind of Wikipedia page or a a walk through in parenthood. A lot of it is you learn as you go. You just kind of figure it out. And yeah. definitely, our parents had the same thing. Um, yeah. So reflect on kind of the gratitude that we need to have towards our parents. Yeah. So my second reflection is kind of based upon uh, my perceived perception of what it's like to be a baby. Because obviously we don't remember our own, right? But if you think about a baby's life, it's kind of humiliating. Yeah, you need someone <laughs> to feed you. You need someone to change your nappy. You, if they don't, if they don't change you, you're just sitting in your own like dirt for, for however <laughs> long. It's not very nice, and it it just kind of reminds you on how dependent we are on everything. Yeah, and how. You know, even our parents, even even us as parents now, we're dependent on so many different things. And were those things not there, we wouldn't be able to survive. And kind of zooming out, it's kind of an analogy for life itself. That everything that exists is dependent. And it it's just the ultimate reminder of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That even if we reflect deeply... Our children are a reflection of our uh, frailty, our dependence and need for nurturing. And essentially, we're no different from our children. Though we have what appears to be dependence in certain things, ultimately we're dependent upon society. And society is dependent on other things. Yeah. And we're all in need of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that, that's my final reflection. Jazakallah khair for coming Barakun. on. I really appreciate it. Alhamdulillah, it was a really good discussion. And inshallah, if you uh, are able to, we'll have you on again. Maybe uh, uh, once you've finished with your with your Cambridge uh, degree, you can come back on and give us some reflections on how it went and if it was more feasible. <laughs> <laughs> inshallah, inshallah. I'll, I'll let inshallah. you know. Make dua for me. Definitely, inshallah. Um, and we're going to have uh, in the description, you will see that there is a link below uh, which it will explain to you more about why Reese is going to Cambridge and you can contribute towards uh, some of the costs of this as well. And inshallah, gain the reward of all the uh, work that he will be doing once he finishes his degree and, and carries on into the future, inshallah. But yeah, click on the link and you'll find out more from there. Jazakallah khair. Take care. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaykum salam wa rahmatullah.